One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The world turns once more. We find ourselves back in the same place. This morning, the newspapers can't quite make up their minds on what the biggest story of the day is. Uh, the pandemic continues, but could it be the setting up of air bridges somehow so that we can all travel to Europe and go on holiday at some point over the next few weeks? Is it that early trials of a vaccine in the USA uh, have created COVID antibodies and appear uh, to be not harmful to humans? Or is it that 10 million people are now having their wages paid by the government? We'll be talking about all of those stories this morning, ladies and gentlemen, but also uh, we'll be talking about a great many other things as well. Donald Trump is getting in the neck again because he claimed yesterday that he is taking anti-malaria drug hydroxychloroquine. Now, it's not very easy to say. It's not very easy to take. Some people say it would kill you. I don't actually believe that Donald Trump is taking it. I think Donald Trump is just now trolling the media in such a way that he makes a bet sometime before he goes into the Rose Garden to give a press conference to say, I bet you if I say this, they'll put it on the front page. I bet you any money. It'll be the greatest story of all time. And that's what he's doing. I don't believe for a minute that Donald Trump is doing something which could inevitably kill people. And if you believe it, I've got some swampland in Florida to sell you. Coming up, uh, back home, Julia Hartley Brewer completely dismantled a plank from Berry Council who was attempting to justify their decision to refuse to open schools against government advice. Tamor Tariq may well make it as a last-minute entry to Plank of the Week, which we are recording later on, of course. 0344 499 We've got a host of great guests coming up today, including travel guru Simon Calder and former Special Advisor to Pretty Patel, James Starkey. But of course, we want to hear from you as well, because you are, of course, the eyes and ears of the Independent Republic. And as we sit on day two in our brilliant new studio, high above the Thames and high above the streets of London. We want you to tell us what you know, what you think, and also how you feel as well. 0344 499 Also joining us, Jeremy Godfrey is going to be here from the Times Money Mentor. Our friends from Witch Magazine will bring you very, very useful information about pensions and what you should do about them. And for our homeschooling section today, we are paying a visit to the year 1666. And if you think it's bad now, that was plague, pestilence, and panic all over the place. And you're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. 
So as we said, there is a great many stories uh, in, out there in the uh, in the naked city today. Nobody can agree seemingly about the front page uh, that they should be going with. The Sun has actually gone uh, with the Queen because she's apparently lost about 18 million quid, which is a bit like me dropping a 20 pound note on the floor on the way in from the car park. So I don't think she's going to be suffering too much over the course of time. But I wonder uh, whether she's going to be making a phone call to congratulate uh, a couple of people on their second wedding anniversary because Harry and Meghan are celebrating two years of married bliss or whatever you want to call it uh, we may be checking it with charlie ray our royal correspondent a little bit later on let's talk now though first of all to james starkey who is of course former special advisor to pre patel and michael gove a man that was once at the heart uh, of government uh, we wonder now what he makes of what is going on james a very good morning to you Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Not at all. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I mean, Pretty Patel uh, is an interesting case in point, an interesting place to start, because we had the immigration bill, of course, going through uh, Parliament yesterday. A lot of people asking the question uh, about what's going on down on the south coast. It's all very well talking about the immigration bill and changing the way uh, that we look at immigration in this country. But what uh, and when is Pretty Patel going to be able to stop these boats coming, these migrant boats uh, full of illegal immigrants coming from the uh, other side of the channel? Well, this is, it's been a long-running issue, I think, as you've covered on your programme uh, a few times. Mm. Uh, this dates back, I mean, David Blunkett had the same problem. Uh, we, some, some of your listeners perhaps remember Sangat and those kinds of camps. Yeah. So it's a very, very difficult problem to solve. Um, Why is it I such think, a difficult problem to solve, though? Well, the, I mean, one of, the, one of the issues I personally think is that the, about seven in ten people who make the crossing will be allowed asylum. Now, many of those people have very terrible stories, very difficult stories to even listen to. Um, so you can understand that. But while that is the case, it obviously offers uh, an incentive to do that. Mm. And the other side is something which you yourself has touched on when I think you have sp- spoken to other people, is that a lot of these uh, people travelling across the continent have landed in countries before. Now, under EU rules, they should be going for asylum in the country they land in. Right. And quite often, they are picked up in various areas. They're not fingerprinted or any of their details are taken. So there is a... You, you, you need some level of cooperation to do this, I would say. Yeah, I think so. But seemingly now that we've left the European Union, as we keep hearing uh, from any government minister who, who cares to pop up on TV, we left the European Union on 31st of January. So technically speaking, these people are not only illegal immigrants into Britain, they're illegal immigrants coming from another part of the world called the European Union, uh, where they have no reason to come here basically from because we are not part of that group anymore. I mean, you're right. And obviously the immigration bill that went through yesterday, which I know that Labour voted against, they still don't seem to want to end free movement. No. Um, but, you know, as I said, you, you do actually need some level of cooperation with uh, kind of mainland Europe, to, to call it yeah. for one of a better phrase. No, yeah, listen, I'm not, I'm not putting you on the spot, James. I'm not expecting you to give me an answer to this, but I'm wondering <laughs> what the problem is. Because when you were working with Priti Patel, I presume she wasn't the home uh, office, um, the home secretary. So, so you may not have specialist knowledge of it. But the bottom line, surely for me, uh, is that if you are dealing with a country... From with which you have a, um, a connection, i.e. when we were both in the European Union and we couldn't, we could get cooperation from them, you know, and it didn't stop these people coming, then surely we have to change the rules now, don't we? And have to say, well, I'll tell you what, now that we're no longer cooperating because we are no longer in the European Union, uh, we're going to have to find some way of making this stop. Well, I would agree with you. I, um, I, I did actually cover immigration for a little bit of a short time in government. OK. Um, and, and as I touched on... Look, I, I'm of the view, and it's a very di- difficult situation, and I lived five years of my life in, a, in Iraq, 
Um, and so I, uh, you know, know some of the some people who have maybe tried to make that journey because of difficult circumstances. But the truth is, if you if if you have a crossing like that, 27 miles of water, which is actually very very dangerous. Um, people don't think it is, but it is an incredibly dangerous stretch of water. Um, and you're able to make it to the other side, and you have a seven in ten chance of being accepted for asylum. That that um, that is an incentive. Um, and so I think that ultimately, at some point, you have to address that. And you have to have a way of you have to have a way of returning people uh, back to France, or well, the, normally it'll be France, but perhaps sometimes Holland. A way of returning people and less acceptance of those cases, because that in itself does, I'm afraid, offer an incentive. And people will criticise that and say, you know, you're being heartless. These people have come from difficult places. Not at all. You're encouraging people to make a journey that puts lives at risk. People have died in there in the last 12 months. Yeah. And while you're encouraging people to do that, it's going to be by by having that high rate of acceptance. There's going to be a reason to take that very dangerous crossing that people take, yes. women and children. So we need to change the, the dynamic here. We need to make it impossible for that to happen. And I'm afraid, if sorry if that sounds heartless, as you say, but that's the only way it's going to change. And in, in the end, um, until and, 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 and until we do that, they're going to keep coming. Am I? Are we also, the question people are asking me at the moment as well is, are we seeing more of them coming uh, at the moment? Or is it because of the fact that we are just kind of more vigilant now because of the pandemic that we're spotting more of these boats well it's it part, partly seasonal so with the with the very good weather that we're having we're enjoying it but it does make it more appealing to cross that stretch of water yes um that is one thing certainly the other thing is it's a bit of a game of cat and mouse for the border agents and yeah. the border enforcement team because you have multiple routes of entry some people do come through islands some people come through the lorries and we've seen the disastrous consequences mm. that that can lead to and what happens is when you exert pressure on one, one particular area we saw the the really terrible story about the people that died in a lorry last year yeah. and you and you maybe start to focus a bit on one area then they start to, then people start to use another route yes. uh, perhaps go so what you see over time is perhaps more people coming through one route and then that's closed off and then finding another way to come in. Yeah, that is the problem. But as you say, I think until the destination and the reason why people come here is changed, then they will continue to do so. Let's move on and talk to a little bit about the uh, uh, the problems that the government's facing at the moment. Clearly, they're trying to unlock the economy. They're trying to lift some of the restrictions that we've had on us for about eight weeks. They're trying to reopen schools. They're seeing a little, little bit of resistance from some rather um, negative Labour-run councils like Bury and Liverpool. Um, but uh, do you see children going back to school at the 1st of June when we get there? It seems like the government's working towards that. And as, and as someone with, with two you know, primary school age kids, uh, personally, I hope they do. I mean, I think it's terrible that what, what appears to be particularly Labour councils seem to me to be playing politics with kids, with kids education. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I worry about and I hope doesn't happen in my area personally. But it does seem the government's working that way. I think... What we've seen so far is they based it on science. They've taken a cautious approach. May, to me, was a month that the government signalled a changeover. They mm. recognised it was a more nuanced message, and that was difficult. But what I think they're trying to do is lead up to kind of June and July and make people feel safer in going back. So hence all the guidance on PP at work and how they're going to do various things. And easing people, you know, they're not opening the, goal, the gates to all schools and saying everyone's coming back. Yeah. They're quite sensibly saying... We're going to bring reception uh, year one and year six, and then we're going to ease people back that way. To me, that seems smart and sensible. 
Yes. I mean, certainly out on the streets yesterday, there was a sense, for me anyway, um, that there's a lot more normalcy going on. There's a lot more people out and about. There's a lot more people returning to work. There's a, there's a fair amount of traffic on the roads. And of course, um, you know, compared to, say, a month ago, when London was pretty much of a ghost town, um, it's like chalk and cheese. Uh, totally. I, I see the same in my area for sure. And I, I think there's an element of giving people their confidence back. We were all told to stay in our homes quite rightly following the scientific advice. But that leads to a lot of people being fearful of going out and doing the things they used to do. And so I do think you need that bridge where you bring in certain measures. You know, Prime Minister's talked about face masks, for example, to give people their confidence. It was never the case for me. I, don't, I think it was highly unlikely that you could go from a lockdown, whatever was going on with the R rate and so on, going from lockdown to straight back into work, straight back into schools, people would have said, well, hang on a minute, are you sure this is safe? So I think we're in a process at the moment where you ease people back, bring people's confidence. As you said, people are coming out of their houses a bit more. They're allowed to go out as much as they want in a day and just getting that confidence in the country back. Yes, exactly right. And as far as the whole kind of um, where's Boris campaign is going, um, I mean, there seems to be uh, a lot of people in this country who would be, I I would suggest, on the left of politics who are continually trying to bash the prime minister for no other reason than the fact that he is the prime minister and his name happens to be Boris Johnson. They just don't accept anything that he does. Have you ever seen such a level of vitriol towards one single individual in, in power? No, I mean, look, I think it's, this is a continuation of what is effectively a culture war. Um, and I think there's a group of people who are used to having it their own way, uh, used to having their people at the top. And you've got a prime minister who doesn't want to do that, who wants to honour that result of the referendum, which was voted by 17.4 million people in this country, wants to deliver an end to free movement and, and deliver all those other things that he's got a manifesto, by the way, on which he won a majority of 80 um, and it would strike me that there's a lot of people that don't seem to have learnt much in a three-year period. <laughs> well, it's incredible, isn't it, that the number of people who voted for this government, who wanted this government, who absolutely rejected the policies uh, and the belief system of the other lot, um, apparently are the ones making the most noise at the moment. Well, I, look, I think it's credit to you that you give people a voice that um, don't uh, get a voice in a lot of ranges of the media. And they're the people... Look at Boris's approval ratings. Yeah. They're very, very good for a prime minister. They really look are. And I, and I see you, Gov and Sky, have now invented new methods of polling to make it look not, not, not as good as it actually is. People want to find all kinds of ways to say something. Well, I mean, like me, you'll speak to, I mean, you speak to look, many people and you, you know, you've got people kind of talking to you on your Twitter feeds. The truth is, if you get out of the bubble, and particularly if you get out of London, there's a totally different view about, you know, there's an understanding. Those daily press conferences, people don't rate them as a beauty contest. No one in my family does. Yeah. They watch them for information. They want to know what's going on. They don't kind of go away and say, oh, Han- Hancock had a good one today. He- mm. He's got six out of ten. Right. They look at it. They get the information they need. They understand why the government's doing what they're doing. It's the method sometimes a bit confusing, perhaps, but it's difficult. We're in a more nuanced period. But broadly, you could see people were like, oh, yeah, stay alert. Use a bit of common sense. Yeah, I get that. That makes sense. The, the plumber put it better than any of us perhaps could. You right. know, just use your common sense. And then he started getting abuse from certain individuals, which I will not mention, uh, who said that he shouldn't be saying, he shouldn't be giving his views on, uh, you know, on medical matters. I mean, unbelievable, really. But finally, uh, last question, James. Is there anything that could trip the government up? Is, is there a sort of man trap waiting for Boris Johnson if he doesn't do certain things, if he doesn't lift the lockdown quickly enough or he lifts it too quickly? I mean, it's a difficult uh, uh, game to balance, isn't it? Look, totally. Government is always like that. My experience of government working in a couple of ministries is, look, it's events. You can't control events. You can lay your best laid plans. You can execute them. 
Uh, you can follow all the science and advice you want. Event, uh, you know, events, we, we are in a place where global events, the economy not least, probably the prime example, will, will kind of dictate partly how things go. But I think, you know, broadly speaking, the, the, the Prime Minister has a lot of support from the country. People understand it's difficult, and I think he'll retain that as we go through it. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. James Starkey, thank you very much indeed. Former Special Advisor to Priti Patel and to Michael Gove, of course, as well. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. And we are live streaming as well, right here on YouTube, on Facebook and on Twitter, uh, live from our brand new studio, which he only moved into yesterday. You can still smell the fresh paint. It's absolutely spectacular. Uh, Great big views over London. Uh, I can see for miles and miles and miles and miles. In fact, I can probably see Simon Calder uh, if I look hard enough. Simon, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Yes, congratulations on the new studio. And I'm just working on improving my um, <laughs> out, out, outdoor uh, stuff. So uh, next time we speak, I hope I will be able to um, enjoy you in vision. Yes. As, uh, so well, many you know, people are doing. Yes. And do you know what <laughs> else we're going to be doing? We're going to be letting you uh, enjoy our vision as well. So when you are a guest on this show, uh, we will be watching you in the studio as well as listening to you so we've got all sorts of whiz-bang ideas for technology to take over which is just as well because we're not going to be traveling are we so have i got this right mike you me and julia hartley brewer are supposed to be going on holiday together exactly right yes, yes. i mean i'm Crikey. not sure who's going to take the bulk of the driving <laughs> because i mean i mean i think we've all been talking about it haven't we because you know i've my daughter for example who lives in dubai um who uh, is hopefully listening to the show even as we speak we've been trying to work out a place we could meet up at some point yes. because we haven't seen each other for a while and we were thinking Paris might work because uh, there's no quarantine involved in Paris. She's currently, as I say, in Dubai. They've just about passed a new rule, a new law, which means that she can leave and go back again. Um, and so Paris looks like a, a possible opportunity. Well, no, because, you, you, I mean, with the greatest respect, uh, Mike, it's not just you, but you are a persona non grata in, in France Am I? at the moment. Yeah, they, they don't want us. Uh, but uh, I, I do believe that um, if you choose somewhere, I, I'm just guessing here, somewhere like um, Hungary, yeah. uh, they might let you in. OK. Um, I uh, thought we had a deal with the, the French, whereby we wouldn't quarantine them and they wouldn't quarantine uh, us. Look, that was 17 uh, leaks from the government ago. I'm afraid you've got to keep up, Mike. Sorry. Now, um, prob- probably, I, I imagine that the um, uh, p- perfect place is going to be Vienna because you are then going to be able to both fly in. Yes. Um, they would like you to have have um, a certificate saying you're coronavirus free but otherwise my understanding is that you can land at uh, at, at, in Austria right they will then say to you right Mike um, you've got a choice you can either go to that office over there spend 166 pounds mm-hmm. and wait for three hours for the results of your coronavirus test right or you can go and sit in a room for 14 days which would you prefer well um, I mean I'd prefer to get myself a certificate before I go I think wouldn't I yes but but those are sort of quite tricky to get and obviously you can't Can I not um, just forge one uh, no, you can't. That's terrible. <laughs> Although I dare say there is a roaring trade in such well, things. Well, I mean, I'll tell you what, there'll be lots of that going on, won't there? Because, yeah. But, I mean, on the other hand, a lot of people are sending me tweets at the moment saying, actually, we don't want to go abroad. We'd like to, if yeah. we do have a holiday, we want to do it at home and, and try and support our own country. Uh, yes, and look, I've been conducting, every, every Wednesday I do a, a, a general sort of social media sweep, a, a poll. Last one got 7,000 votes. And um, basically, if you could go abroad in July, which looks sort of reasonable, although, of course, we don't know about the uh, quarantine rules and the air bridges and so on. Right. If you would, would you? And um, it's been getting steadily more and more against going away to the extent that last Wednesday it was two thirds of people said I wouldn't go 
away. Thank you very much. Yes, I um, think I think for so a lot of people, it's just you, me, and Julia, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. And your daughter. It is because for a lot of people, I think the worry is not so much getting to a place, but it's getting stuck there um, and not being able to either get back because something changes. You know, it's a bit like why I didn't travel to see my family uh, for the first sort of seven to eight weeks of this pandemic because I wondered whether I might go there, uh, even though I shouldn't really, but I might find that actually I couldn't get back to London for some reason or because they would limit travel or something. You know, something would happen. And because it is so unknown at the moment, you know, I'm, I'm reluctant to go anywhere uh, in, 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 a, in, a, in an aeroplane to foreign parts because I don't know whether I'd get stuck there. Oh, quite. And that was, of course, at the early stages. Do you remember that hotel, the H10 in Tenerife? Yes. Where, where yeah, a whole load of Brits, 800 or something, piled in. Right, they couldn't Great get start out. of the holiday. And then they spent the next two weeks in the on their balconies yes. um, with armed guards outside. Right. I mean, crikey, I stay in some dodgy places, but not that bad. <laughs> no, um, quite. And, but, and but, so, yes, there's huge anxiety about that and many other things. And yeah, what happens if you fall ill and you've got coronavirus and you're abroad? That's going to be a really difficult yes. uh, situation. Yeah, and also presumably insurance-wise, it's going to be tricky as well because if you say, for example, are travelling to somewhere like I don't know, say you decide to go to Greece, who seems to be making a lot of noises about wanting to have tourism return, and you do get a coronavirus infection while you're there, uh, are you covered by your insurance, or would your insurance company, travel insurance-wise, probably have a clause in their contract to say they don't cover you if that's the case? Largely depends when you took out the uh, policy and the exact wording of it. But certainly, if, if I mean it's irrelevant at the moment anyway because if you or me go abroad now we are breaking the foreign office advice against non-essential travel and your uh, travel insurance is automatically invalidated Mm. of course greece croatia italy spain portugal and many other countries were still covered by the european health insurance card and that will continue for the end of the till the end of the year so there wouldn't be a financial penalty but obviously you don't want to be lying in some uh, some distant hospital um with your loved ones um uh, back in the uk no quite what about Ryanair then? Because aren't they taking off uh, a load of flights? 40% of their flights return, I thought I heard, in June, don't they? Uh, yes. Let me tell you what is happening from the point of view of the biggest travel operators in Europe. So Ryanair, the biggest European budget airline, mm. they are saying, right, everybody, uh, we're going to slightly ramp up services towards the end of June. And then 1st of July, we're off. Um, wherever you want to go, we can we can probably fly you there. Yeah. Um, and by the way, millions of you have already got bookings, so we're assuming you're turning up at the airport. Mm. Uh, TUI, the biggest tour operator in Europe, is saying, OK, it's been absolutely miserable, but we're absolutely determined to go ahead with our holidays from um, the start of July. And because, unfortunately, of distance, different social distancing rules, can you imagine? You've got a couple of hotels in Benidorm, uh, both run for TUI, holidaymakers. Um, the one on the left is full of Brits, and they've got to social distance by two metres. The one on the right's for Germans, and they've only got 1.5 metres of social distancing but we'll kind of get it sorted out and just in the past hour or so Portugal has joined what I think is a bit of an arms race to get the first tourists back and um, basically their, their prime minister says the um, uh, beaches are going to be open from the 6th of June right. there's going to be an app which says if there's enough room for your um, the, the towel or your, your chosen beach um, and the hotels are opening up 
back again in Portugal um, starting in June. You've had uh, Italy saying, right, 12th of June is when we're going to welcome people back. Spain saying, yep, we're we're up for, for holidaymakers in June. And as you say, uh, the Greek tourism minister has not only said, um, yep, um, we're, we're going to be open on the 1st of July, but he's also said, um, tell you what, Brits, if you want to come here without quarantine, mm. then obviously Greek people will want to come to the UK without quarantine. So um, can we have an air bridge, which takes us into, into the horrible entrails of the arguments going on in cabinet right now mike yes well of course the other thing is if they are going to have a quarantine for people coming from other countries in europe but it doesn't apply to lorry drivers which is something else that i've uh, been told about then what's the point because if you've got people coming in uh, driving lorries they're just as likely to be spreading the disease as anybody else and unless they test them surely they shouldn't let them in should they well uh there's all sorts of people a cabin crew for instance so yeah. if, if if you're uh uh, crew on an American airline, you fly into the UK. You're going to have to have a rest. They're not going to put you straight on the f- uh, on the first plane back. Right. Um, and so, what happens to you? Do you uh, or, or British Airways cabin crew? They've been abroad. Do they come back and, and wait for two weeks? It's still not clear. Mm. We have been waiting. Um, what uh, since the Prime Minister announced it is now nine days. Um, it was due to come in as soon as possible. All the guidance, i.e., the many many leaks, said that quarantine would take effect before the end of the month. Yeah. We learned yesterday from the Transport Secretary, Grant Shapps, who, by the way, is vehemently opposed to it, um, that it's going to be coming in in June. And he was the one who said, um, yeah, we might have lots of exemptions with all these different countries who, because we are now a low incidence country, was the idea, that we're, 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 we're no, no longer the sick man of Europe. Okay. Everybody will want us, especially you, Mike, and well, Julia. listen, I mean, there's no uh, reason to disagree with any of that at all. But um, So your view, basically, is that this airbridge scheme is is a, is is a non-starter that basically people won't be able to travel in the way that seemingly some are suggesting they can and we should just write off the rest of the year then no i'm saying that that is the view of some people in the cabinet uh, matt hancock absolutely says just write off the summer um yeah, we'll start again next year but grant well, it's Shabs- easy for him to say well, yeah, Grant Shapps, who's got the, the entire UK aviation industry breathing down his neck, saying we are being destroyed, please don't prolong the misery, uh, wants something to to, to, to to rescue something from the summer. So my prediction is that quarantine will come in early in June. It will run for three weeks um, and then the government will think of some reason why uh, it's going to be removed and um, then we'll we'll try and salvage whatever's left. So yeah. I, 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 the date I'm sort of looking at is... Um, when, if you remember the olden days when we used to have school holidays, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think they will they will be looking at roughly the eighteenth uh, uh, of of July, okay. which would be for many schools or uh, the the start of the school summer holidays. Yes. and to in start fact, things off. and in fact, quite a lot may have changed by then as well. Of course, because what we do know, Simon, is that on a weekly basis, the circumstances of all of this seem to move around quite a lot. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if all sorts of countries have, have, have undone their lockdown in terms of the way Italy's done it already, in terms of the way Germany's doing it. I mean, I saw people drinking in a bar in Germany yeah. the weekend, watching the football. 
heaven oh. forbid, you know. Oh, sure. And and look, Spain, which at one stage, probably a month or so ago, was seriously considering a scenario where they had no foreign tourists at all. Right. They basically said to all the Spanish people, right, you lot all stay here and fill up all the beds right. on, on the costas, which would normally have Brits mm. and Germans and Scandinavians in. Um, but now they're saying, no, June is, we're, we're starting it all up. Um, obviously, different rules. Uh, it's going to be tricky. It's not going to be the same as your usual holidays, yeah. but we're going to get there. Um, and we will see this 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 race to get people back across the Mediterranean but it's up to the government here to decide if we are able to participate um, as holiday makers at the moment it's all academic because the Foreign Office still warns against uh, non-essential travel abroad yes no I think that's what's interesting and what about people because you and I have spoken about this already before uh, and we talk to consumer journalists about it all the time there are still plenty of people who have got holidays booked who as far as the holiday oh. company are concerned uh, have not cancelled them yet no, and they can't cancel them. It's absolutely absurd. The uh, Right, until we get the quarantine rules and find out about any air bridges or exemptions or mm. whatever, um, the, the, the travel firms can't tell holidaymakers if the trip they've, they've booked is going to be going ahead, but the presumption legally has to be that it will be going ahead, yeah. even though everything that the government says and does makes that increasingly unlikely. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's people you know, booked to travel in mid June with the two big tour operators, TUI and Jet2, who simply haven't got a clue. And the holiday companies want to be able to tell them, but they can't because they haven't been told by the government what rules are. And you know, the one certainty is that if you have to self-isolate uh, for for two weeks after you come back uh, from a, a trip to Europe, then the chances are you will not want to go because you've got to go to work. You've got to go yeah. to uh, look after family or whatever. So nobody knows what's going on. Um, and <laughs> every time... A, government minister opens his or her mouth the story seems to change yes it does indeed well listen thank you Simon, Simon for sorting that one out for us Simon Calder there travel editor at the independent travel guru for this show uh, it would seem as though you should be basically standing by your beds uh, don't make any decisions yet do not by any means uh, or imagination book any holidays yet because nobody's quite sure precisely what's going to happen you might be able to go to Italy uh, but you might have to be tested for coronavirus before they let you in you might be able to go to Vienna uh, and Austria you might get your haircut in Vienna, actually, if you go there. It's quite a good place to go because uh, they've opened the hairdressers. They've opened some of the bars. So it is a bit of a tempting destination. However, uh, you will either have to find yourself a certificate uh, of inoculation uh, or a certificate that says that you've had the coronavirus and you're now no longer infected uh, or you've got the antibodies or you have to have a test while you're there. Uh, and I don't know if anybody wants to go through with all that. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Charlie Ray coming up now, uh, who is, of course, former royal correspondent, uh, royal editor, I should say, at The Sun. He's going to be telling us about how the Queen has managed to lose 18 million quid from her finances after shutting down all the palaces because she's not getting the tourism money in anymore. Also, we may have to discuss the second anniversary uh, of Meghan and Harry. What a difference two years make. Just imagine, two years ago today, we were all glued to the television screens watching the likes of Oprah Winfrey, David Beckham, Posh Spice, walking around in Windsor, enjoying the lovely sunshine, welcoming a new member of the family into the family and thinking, well, this will be good. It'll be a bit like sort of a Diana moment. You know, finally, Prince Harry walks down the aisle with this beautiful woman who's an actress from America uh, and who's going to be a breath of fresh air. Didn't quite turn out that way, did it? 0344-499-1000 is the number. Homeschooling later on as well. We're going to be looking at the year 1666 which was even worse than 2020. Uh, the words are plague, war and hellfire. We haven't quite got that bad yet here, have we? Uh, Rebecca Rydell is going to join us and we've got some hospitality going on a little bit later on as well. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. And time to say a very good afternoon to our favourite Royal Cross one, Mr Charles Ray. Charles, hello, how are you? Hello, Mike. Yeah, very well. Thank good you. man. Good man. Now, I've been likening the Queen losing 18 million quid to me, dropping a £20 note on the street on my way in from the car park. Am I being slightly um, unfair? Uh, oh, no. You're never unfair when, you, when it comes to the Royals, <laughs> mate. You know that. Of course. Uh, I mean, it's, the, the, the simple matter is that uh, normally the Queen earns around £70 million a year right. from ticket and souvenir sales from all the tourists that come okay. walk into the country around the world. Now, there is an email that's come out from the Lord Chamberlain, L. Peel, who has now warned all staff that the income is expected to fall by a third this year, nearly £18 million. And it's not rocket science or Donald Trump's brain to work out, Mike, that that's because no one's going to the palace. Yes. Uh, because of coronavirus. So everybody from the Queen down is being hit in the pockets uh, some way or another. Mm. You may lose £20, she's losing £18 million. <laughs> Well, I mean, it suddenly occurred to me while I was just looking over the story. I mean, what we don't know, I suppose, and one would imagine that she would be quite heavily criticised if it was true. Have they furloughed all the staff that are at the, uh, at the palaces? I, I actually, I'm not sure if they have. I know she only took 
a skeleton staff with her, mm. with her to go into isolation at um, at Windsor Castle. Right. But as far as I'm aware, I may be wrong, and someone else may remember something else. But as far as I'm aware, I don't think many people have been anybody has been furloughed at the palace. So they're still they're still working. It's a, the palaces are big places and mm. they still need to be looked after yes so you do need quite a large number of staff but she has only got a skeleton staff with her at windsor which is a deliberate move yes i'm thinking of people like for example i don't know um the people who sit in the ticket office at the tower of london who presumably are employed by the royal household i may be wrong about that but they wouldn't need to be no, there would they I, I i you're right and i don't know if they are employed by the royal household it's it's one of these things i haven't i haven't looked at so right. I, but as i say i haven't heard of anybody being furloughed at the palaces someone may come up and sort of say oh yeah she did all this and whatever that may well be right but as far as I'm, i can remember no i don't think yeah. anybody's been furloughed and the 70 million that you speak of that she makes every year does she get to mm. keep all of that or is that kind of funneled back well, into the running of the palace it's funneled back into the running of the palaces. Uh, it, it's an income that comes in and it you know, goes back out again for the upkeep of the various palaces. I mean, there's quite a, there's quite a few of them. If you look at the sun, you can see just a few choice examples. You know, Windsor, Clams House, Hollywood House, up in Edinburgh, the Buckingham Palace, of course, the, the various galleries that they've got, and the Royal Muse. And, you know, these things do need to uh, a large amount of upkeep. So it, it is a very popular tour. These are very popular tourist attractions. Yes. Particularly for the tourists who come from abroad, you know, who want to see what they see as real old England and, you know, the the, the, the royalty. It, it sells like hotcakes. Oh, it does. does. Absolutely right. And also, I mean, she'll have a bit of expenditure to think about with the likes of Prince Andrew uh, and the current situation he's in, where uh, some bloke in Switzerland is looking for about the, the thick end of seven million quid. <laughs> Well, I don't, I'm not sure that she's going to be dipping into her part <laughs> uh, to that out, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. I mean, she's already, I mean, he's off the royal payroll, uh, but he does get money from her privately, from her own private income. Mm. Uh, I think it's about two fifty, uh, £250,000 a year. Plus, of course, he's got his Navy pension, which is twenty grand, which is way, way short. It's not going to help much, is it? <laughs> That's not going to keep Fergie in shoes, is it? It's not going to keep anybody in anything with the way they spend money. Right. But that's interesting because that, that is a court case. I'm not sure it's due to come up, but this woman is determined to try and claw back this mm. money. And, uh, you know, basically, Andrew and Fergie don't have it. No, it's a very curious situation, isn't it? Because it looks as though, and I think you and I discussed this before, that this yeah. house that they bought in Verbier is not really uh, a traditionally bought house. It would appear that they seem to have bought some part of it or shares in it or something like that as some kind of investment vehicle. And the worry that I've got is that who's he borrowed the money from in the first place to give them the bit that he's already given them? You're absolutely right, because we've gone through the figures before, and if you remember, he got about £15 million for South for, for South York, South York, yeah, uh, and he and he and he ploughed about seven million into the refurbishment of uh, Windsor Lodge, where mm. he now lives, and remarkably, Fergie's living there as well. Uh, and then they put down, I think it was about thirteen million uh, for their share uh, of this chalet. So even if you say he had six to seven million left, he's got six to seven million from somewhere else. I suspect that the woman herself is, is the one who loaned them the money and that's why she wants it all back. Oh, it could be, yeah. So some kind of, uh, a sort of one of those rent buy to, most expensive buy-to-rent in the world. <laughs> <laughs>
You know, it's normally supposed to help you get on the housing ladder. But yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because, of course, we're looking around at the royal family uh, over the course of this week. When the Queen decided to do this kind of self-isolation thing, do you think that was just because of coronavirus and a mixture of that plus her own kind of health, which is, you know, must not be great because she's quite old now? Well, no, no. Her health is just a good neck for a woman of 94 to be fair to her mm. but i mean she was advised by her doctors and, and various other people look you're 94 you are in the category and what we don't we didn't need is the queen to catch coronavirus i mean that would be just absolutely dreadful so the decision the right decision was made that she should go into isolation with uh, prince philip uh, at windsor castle and uh, they've already cancelled her diary for future engagements now her diary is set for two years in advance yes so there's going to be an awful lot of and missing engagements uh, over a period of time, even if suddenly uh, by the end of July, August or whatever, we suddenly find a cure and coronavirus is beaten and everything else, it's still going to take some time for the Queen's diary and I suspect for everyone else to get back into the swing of things of of, of what we would have thought would be normal living again. Yes, exactly right. And we've seen Prince Charles come out and uh, bas- basically ask everybody to pick fruit and vegetables over the course of the yes. summer to keep the uh, keep the sort of the food business going in this country. We've also seen um, William and Kate doing. Uh, we had it on this station yesterday, uh, a sort of mental health awareness minute, uh, minute yes. for yes. everybody on every radio station around. Um, meanwhile, over in uh, sunny California, I'm just seeing that uh, I look back at one of the Instagram accounts from someone who used to live where Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are now living, uh, they've basically got all sorts of uh, nice things like a sunken Grecian bath, 22 acres they've got apparently, uh, in a Tuscan-style villa in the Beverly Ridge Estates, guard-gated community, uh, lovely terrace views of Los Angeles and a very cute nursery apparently. Uh, they have, and remarkably... It's beautiful. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if you noticed, Mike, <laughs> but remarkably... They've got this splendid isolation, this fabulous place and everything else, but then they decided to erect a six-foot black screen around it so that nobody, <laughs> whatever you could peer in, if anybody could peer in from, from whatever, uh, so that nobody could actually see anything. Yeah. Well, I've previously said I'm, I've convinced that that's to stop Harry escaping. Yes, it probably is. I wonder, actually, no, we haven't actually seen Harry uh, for a while. I just wonder if, she, if she's let him out of the dungeon. Well, do you know, um, he was meant to... I, I was critical of him for not doing some kind of VE Day uh, type message. He apparently was on the one show on the Monday following VE Day where he was talking about some military charity that he does. So he so he has made some kind of effort. But, I mean, it was four yeah. days too late, really. Well, no, no, I, absolutely, I agree with you. I mean, you would have thought he would have been uh, on the ball on the day like all the other members of the royal family yeah. were, were bringing up old old veterans and, char- you know, uh, armed forces charities and everything else. And I, and I would have thought that would have been right up his street on that day. But no, nothing. You're right. You know, the one show. Yeah, yeah it is a remarkable. And so for their second, I mean, I was just saying, and you you would probably remember it better than I do, really, but this, it seemed a very joyous occasion two years ago in Windsor, didn't it? There was a big crowd of people. Was- there was lots of celebs. You know, it was a, it was a nice uh, weather, a nice day. People covered it. I think, was it Eamon Holmes that covered it, I think, live um, I, for ITV? I, I, and it was... Well, and it was just, and everybody just thought, what a nice couple, what a lovely, a beautiful-looking young pair of people. And, and it's all just gone horribly wrong, isn't it? 
It was a superb day. It was an absolutely beautiful day, and you had the drama of the fact that her father had turned up, and the Prince of Wales partially walked her down the aisle, right. and, and she looked absolutely sensational, as did Harry, and as you quite rightly say, we were, we were talking mainly double-A-list celebrity. Mm. Who had who turned up to the wedding? Everybody was having a great time. The ride through Windsor and everything else after was fantastic on, in the in the open uh, carriage, and it, it, we were all full of hope. Everyone, everyone was. This is it. This is the, this is going to be the new couple who are going to be taking on more jobs because of the Queen's age, and she's going to pull back a little bit. And, and it's all turned to dust, really. You know. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a big pity. I mean, we 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 noticed that they're now talking about this 2.4 million that we have paid into Windsor uh, Cottage. Uh, Windsor oh, Frogmore Cottage, yeah. Frogmore Cottage. Sorry, I I must try and remember who. <laughs> it's not easy to keep up with um, all these cottages, you know. <laughs> it's Frogmore Cottage, and uh, we're now hearing that they're actually paying back the 2.4 million. But, but are they though? Hang on a minute. Uh, well, this is this is this is the point. Uh, Two point four million at eighteen thousand pounds a month. That's one hundred and thirty-two months. That's eleven years. <laughs> you know, that's that's, that's going to be that's going to be longer than a marriage lasts, isn't it? And that's and that's not counting any cost for the upkeep of the place while they're not living there. Right. So presumably there is still a cost. Like we've just been talking about the royal palaces. There, there must be still a cost of upkeep for the place. But if you just take 2.4 and divide it by, you know, the, the, the figures, you will get 11 years. Right. And that doesn't seem to me to be a great deal for the for the country and for the taxpayer. No, not at all. I would have thought that with the money that they've, they've both got between them, they could have afforded, even if you sort of said, look, we'll give you, we'll you 1.2 mil this year and we'll give you 1.2 mil next year, that's it sorted. I, yeah. I don't think many people would have criticised that. But 18 grand a month, you know, and, and they're not paying any rent whatsoever um, on this Tyler Perry, whoever he is. Right. This fantastic estate they've got in Hollywood. Well, he's a mate of uh, of Oprah Winfrey's. That's all we know, isn't Oprah it? Win- yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, hey, how he's made his fortune. Apparently, he's mega, mega rich. I've never... I, I, I'm sorry we heard his name the other day. I've never heard of him before. I have no idea what he does. No. What he's done no, I think that's part of the part of the mystique, isn't it? You know, as long as you're friends with Oprah Winfrey, you don't have to worry about anything because you'll find yourself something that will no doubt pay you bucket loads of money to do things. But that is the other problem with these two. We're still, as far as we know, paying out a bit for their security, aren't we? Well, they are uh, because Prince uh, Charles has, is giving them, at the moment, it's got to be looked at in about 12 months, £2 million a year at the moment. Uh, to help pay for some of that security, um, so they are getting that sort of money. Um, plus, I mean, the problem with them is, you know, they move to Canada, then they move to the states uh, because they're going to start new careers. She's presumably going to go back into some sort of show business type thing, and along comes coronavirus and squashes all the plans. Right. You know, right down like for everyone else, everybody's plans have been screwed up, and they're no different. But. Uh, you know, they, I don't know where they're going to get their money from at no. all in the future. No, exactly right. Somebody's just tweeted me and said, if they, if they get divorced, what do you think she's going to ask for? Windsor Castle. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could see that, couldn't oh, you? Uh, well, yeah, you, well, 
yeah, except that we own Windsor Council, and I don't think we're going to be giving her that anyway. No, no, I think absolutely right. Well, listen, Charles, thanks very much indeed. Charles Ray, former Royal Editor of The Sun, uh, announcing, uh, as he would, the uh, 10-second anniversary, the second wedding anniversary, of course, of Harry and Meghan, uh, who are currently in California in a £15 mansion, £15 million mansion, I should say, uh, with a Grecian sunken bath and a massive balcony overlooking um, basically downtown Los Angeles. It's a beautiful part of the world. Beverly Hills is where they're living. But it's really not his style at all. I mean, he's very much a hunting, shooting and fishing brigade type who should be in a barber in some Wellington boots uh, standing in some uh, northern uh, river in Scotland, the Tay, with a fishing rod trying to land some salmon. Isn't that what he should be doing? What the hell is he doing in Beverly Hills? Get back here, for heaven's sake. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Julie Hartley Brewer this morning, by the way, was absolutely brilliant. She had a big row with a councillor from Berry Council, uh, who is one of those people who had decided it's a good idea to shut down, uh, not only shut down the schools, but refuse to basically open the schools. Uh, and so uh, she basically handed him um, his um, uh, his lunch, I think you might be fair to say. Uh, he's now blocked her, apparently, on Twitter. I think he may well make it into Plank of the Week. Uh, we're filming, or not filming, we're recording later on this afternoon. Uh, his name is Tamor Tarek. Uh, who apparently said it was a badge of honour uh, for Julia to call Berry Council a bunch of idiots. He also then accused her uh, of basically being a racist and a bigot herself. Um, unbelievable that these people are actually paid by the public purse to represent us. This guy apparently is in charge of the schools up in Bury, which is quite extraordinary when you think about it. But let's talk now uh, to Rebecca Ryder, a woman uh, who we've spoken to many times before, but not for a long time. She's an historian and an author. Uh, we're going to talk for homeschooling today about a year which was in many ways um, an awful lot worse than 2020. It's 1666. If you haven't done it yet, get your children wrapped around the radio or around Alexa or around the television if you're watching us as well. Uh, you might learn something. Rebecca, very good afternoon to you. Hi, hi, thanks for having me. Not at all. I know that this is your favourite period of history. I know that you've written about it in many, many different ways. Um, but the Great Fire of London, the plague, war, hellfire. I mean, you know, some people think we've got it bad, but I mean, it must have been really awful. Yeah, it was It was pretty pretty bad then. Um, but it's, it's weird as a historian because you kind of go through this situation. I mean, there's no, no comparison really, but one of the things that you can, you do start to think about is being in lockdown and how how people must have felt back then um, as opposed to now. So, um, yeah, anyway, that's me um, digressing slightly. Yes, no, that's okay. I mean, funnily enough, as we sit here, people have been uh, going mad because I keep describing the the, the view I've got out the window. I'm actually looking across the river. Uh, I can see the uh, Tower of London. Uh, I can just about see Monument on the left-hand side. And, of course, that's where the Fire of London started. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And actually, the Tower of London is one of the few places, um, well, iconic buildings, I suppose, um, in the heart of um, London that actually survived the fire, as we obviously yes. know. Didn't, didn't that, wasn't that the out sort of eastern edge of the fire? Wasn't that as far as it got? Yeah, it was. And there was a real effort, a concerted effort to try and stop the fire there, because at that point in time, so in 1666, Britain, well, not Britain, sorry, England was at war with um, the Dutch. Yes. So, Within the, the Tower of London was all of the artillery that was needed. So this is gunpowder and things. So if the fire had actually reached the um, the Tower of London, then, I mean, it was a catastrophe, but mm. it would have been absolutely, you know, a huge catastrophe if that had happened as well. Yes, of course. And then the westernmost point of where it got to, I believe, was Smithfield. Is that right? Um, yeah, it was. Um, it, I mean, it spread. It was mainly around the... Um, 
the city of London. So you can't really, if you if you if you visited, if you're a child and you visited London um, nowadays, you don't see that the city of London would have had walls all around it. Yes. So that was the main. That was they were in place then. So that was the main area that um, London was affected within this um, original walled city that was actually built by the Romans. Mm. Um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years before. But that was the core area that was really affected. Yes. And as far as what London was like in those days, was it a pretty ghastly kind of uh, stench-filled, filthy? Um, sort of inner city, as if you like, you know, with sort of sewage running down the streets and and people walking around in fairly disgusting manners. <laughs> yeah, well, we do always have those images when I mean, you watch things like, um, you know, watch films and things. You always have this image of people being quite quite disgusting when when um, they were living in the past. But obviously, they're exaggerated. But it, what what is true though is that the city of London at this time it was very um, the buildings were very close together, so you could probably walk through most of London, most of the city of London, and not realise it was sunny outside. It would be quite a dark space. So most of the buildings were built of, um, were made of wood. Um, and in 1666, it had been a very dry year. So these buildings, these wooden buildings were in- incredibly mm. dry. So any fire that would have ta- you know, broken out would have um, been at huge risk of spreading around because obviously we know that to make a fire you need fuel and um, wood is a perfect fuel for that. Oh, of course. And did it actually start in a bakery? I mean, was it the burning buns or were the Dutch spies involved? I mean, there's a few tales, aren't there, of, of how the fire actually started? Yeah, it did start in a bakery. The bakery of Thomas Farriner, um, in, and he lived on um, Pudding Lane, which I think is a brilliant name for a street. Yes. Um, but yeah, so that, the fire broke out there, which was in the city of London, and it broke out around, well, just after midnight um, in his bakehouse. Mm. Um, and there's lots of theories, as well, I mean, after the fire, there were lots of theories about how this happened. There were accusations because obviously, as I mentioned, England was at war with the Dutch at the time. Mm. So there were people accusing um, the Dutch of having done it or the French of having done it as well. Another country that England was at war with. England tends to be at war with people a lot in history. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, so there were these accusations going around, but actually it did start in his bakehouse and then it spread very quickly throughout the whole of the city of London and it was because there was a an easterly wind that was blowing blowing the fire and then there was also as I've mentioned before all of these wooden buildings it broke out in the early hours of a Sunday morning so people were less mobile and people weren't moving around as much around the city to notice it so um, because of these things combined it was able to spread very quickly yes although strangely I suppose maybe because it was a Sunday there wasn't as many casualties as you might have expected there to be yeah, well, this is one of the things I, I try to um, say with my research. And I know most school schoolchildren um, are taught that there were very few casualties because mm. of the Great Fire of London. And in terms of what we know, um, um, you know, with the records that were kept, it does seem that um, it was people were very lucky. Um, but equally, I do think we're, there were probably a little bit more, you know, people were harmed a little bit more than we, we usually um we usually say um so i mean i won't go into all of that here because obviously children are listening (laughs) but it was um it was uh yeah it was um that in terms of the the number of people living in the city most people were lucky to get away with their stuff and and survive Mm. and was one of the sort of if there was to be an upside to it uh was that it did sort of finally finish off the plague that might have still been hanging around in the uh in the rats and whatever um, well, that's that's certainly one theory, but I don't uh, personally. I'm not really um, 
persuaded by that because mm. the plague had already left the city. The plague broke out in 1665, um, which is obviously the year before. Um, there had been a few cases in 1666, well, quite a few. But by the time the Great Fire of London broke out, the plague had already really left the city. Um, but what it did do was um, it made the city a lot neater. Mm and actually cleaner as well. And then after the Great Fire, um, because the new building regulations were brought into place, buildings had to be, if not built out of um, stone and brick, they had to be clad in that, which means um, they would have stone coating the building, so to speak. Um, So the the city did look a lot neater. And obviously, Mm. children may have heard of a man called Sir Christopher Wren, who was in charge of rebuilding all of the churches in the city. And his most iconic church is... um, uh, the cathedral of St Paul's, um, Saint Paul's yeah. yeah and presumably that was the first sort of proper rebuild of it wasn't it because I suppose the old St Paul's was destroyed by the fire but the one that we see now is pretty much the one that survived the second world war isn't it yeah that's tr- that's true that's true it's um it, it was it, it's pretty much stayed stayed intact as yeah. it is but the, the the cathedral beforehand had been built during the medieval time and had already been damaged quite a few times and actually um, Sir Christopher Wren and um, another man called Robert Hook were um, climbing the scaffolding a few days before the Great Fire broke out that was surrounding um, the old cathedral right. to try and figure out how to fix certain things that were mm. wrong with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. And so there weren't any sort of massively iconic buildings destroyed by the fire then? Well, obviously the old the old cathedral of St Paul's yeah. was, was destroyed. And there were buildings that we don't... Um, because they don't exist anymore. They're not iconic to us, but yes. they would have been iconic at the time. So mm. um, there was a huge castle that was on the waterfront in the city of London called Baynard's Castle. Um, and that had, you know, it, that had such a huge history. Mm. Um, and that was that was destroyed. Lots of churches were destroyed, which have, would have been iconic buildings to the local people that lived there. Right. And some of them weren't rebuilt. Um, the Guildhall, which is where um, the mayor and the aldermen of the city would have focused all of their meetings and things, that wasn't destroyed but it was badly damaged right. as well. Okay. Um, so there were places, but the main ones, that, the main buildings, historic buildings that we think of when we think of London today um, are still, you know, they, they weren't affected. So um, over in Westminster, for example, none of the buildings there were damaged. Right. Um, and they didn't the reach them, London wasn't. No, of course. Well, no, thank goodness didn't. Sadiq Khan wasn't around. He would have put a few cycle lanes in, no doubt, after the, uh, the fire had cleared the streets. Well, <laughs> <laughs> the less said about him, the better. Well, listen, thank you very much. Here's another interesting uh, date in history for you. I've had this from Beverly. On this day in 1536, Queen Anne Boleyn was beheaded at the behest of her husband, Henry VIII. Um, it's interesting that Harry and Meghan chose the 19th of May to get married. It's not the greatest uh, commemoration, is it, for, uh, for, for that? Uh, so, so I guess the 19th of May uh, is an interesting date. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. I, yeah. I always like, it's always fun when you go on, um, you can go on to Wikipedia um, yes. if, if um, children are allowed. You can you can go on and you can see the things that have happened today. And sometimes it's quite reassuring because it makes you think, actually, yeah, <laughs> things are tough and it's hard not seeing your friends at the moment. But actually, things were much worse in the yes. past. So, you know, we're not, it's not that hard for us. Um, no. So we can, we can get through this. It will be fine. I'm absolutely sure of it. Thank you very much indeed. Rebecca Rydell, historian, author of 1666, Plague, War and Hellfire. Uh, it's a book. Go and get it. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham.
on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.